You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Everything, and I do mean everything that is good in my life, truly good, has something to do with the Holy Spirit. Welcome to the beginning of this sermon series. And are you aware that there are home groups working off of this series uh, over the next five weeks? In fact, we we just began. But let me uh, just put in a little promo here for the home groups. We are looking at the Holy Spirit here on Sundays and Saturday nights and also in home meetings. So if you do go to one of these home meetings, here's what you will experience. You'll walk into a room with other people in it. There'll be a group there, and when you walk in, you will see a video projecting device somewhere in the room, and on that video projecting device, you will see a video content. So every week you come, there will be something pre-recorded that you will watch and then respond to. So if you walked in this coming week, you'll see about 15 minutes of teaching with me and then pastor smith will follow it up and say okay based on what we've just heard uh, what should we think about this how does this affect how we live individually and as a church and each week will feature one of a series of videos that pastor jonathan uh, shot when he interviewed different members of our congregation about what it means to respond to the spirit so each week uh, video content me pastor smith and then uh, Pastor Jonathan. And so we hope you'll take advantage of it. A lot of work has gone into it. By the way, that Holy Spirit medley, talking about work, uh, boy, that was just, but didn't you just feel your heart begin to well up and your body just begin to settle in the presence of the Lord? That was, that was fantastic. So, but, but would, you, would you come uh, to the home groups? Uh, Pastor, um, I've never registered for a home group, so if right now I'm feeling a home group burden. Uh, what, what would I do when the, when the service is over? I would, I would leave this place, and then where do I go to say, I want to be a part of one of those home groups? There is, a, there is a lounge out there that says groups on it, a groups lounge. So there'll be groups of people lounging, and so you go out there, and then you go, which, which direction do you go? You go left. Correct, so you go so out there and then to the left, and, uh, and please do, and part of it is just selfish, I gotta be honest with you. These little things, I do this little teaching segment, and I just hope some of you watch it, because doing these I find really hard. It's not, it's not the prep and the writing, it's, it's the shooting of them is, it's a bit torturous for me to be honest because there's nobody in the room. And as people on staff know, I'm a man of the people. I I need people to respond to and look at. In other words, when I walk into that room, I'm thinking, here's what I'd wanna say to the people that I know so well, but I can't say it well without you there. I mean, this is much easier for me to do right now than being upstairs in that little uh, studio room. And then, of course, there's something happens when we're gathered together in this room and the spirit begins to move that just changes how I say it and how you hear it, right? And, and we'll, we'll talk about that work of the spirit, how the spirit works among us in, in one of the later sessions. So I, I, hope, I hope you'll come. Uh, 
Sorry, I'm just thinking about how torturous it has been. It was, it was day one of shooting, and we had tried a few times, and I kept stopping Jeff, saying, stop, Jeff, I, I got to reset. I got to try to manage people. Can, can you help me? I'm trying to imagine a crowd here. He says, Dr. Van, I got just the solution. He says, let's, let's take a quick break. So, so he heads out the door. We take a bit of a break. And when I came back in, I discovered what he had done, and I wanted you to have a picture of this. So here would be you looking over my shoulder. <laughs> Boy, if that doesn't put the fear of God into you, I don't know what would. So I don't know if that made it easier or harder, but that's now what I'm staring at as I'm preparing for you to go to those home groups. So there you go. Today, the spirit as life. The spirit brings life. The spirit draws us back to life. And then when we come to our senses, he restores life in us. The spirit as life. You don't have to go very far in the Old Testament to realize that the spirit is involved in the work of God in the world. In fact, it's verse two of the story of beginnings. It's verse two of Genesis chapter one. Shall we take a look at it together? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters right from the very beginning. At the moment when God begins to create, the spirit is already there. Nothing is told to us in chapter 1 as to what the Spirit is doing, but we know He is involved. It's in chapter 2 that we have an example of what the Spirit does in bringing life to humankind. Let's go to chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed a man, which means Adam, from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Say, Dr. Van, I don't see the spirit there. Breath of life. What else would God's breath be other than his spirit? In Old Testament texts, particularly when the discussion is about how God created or recreates. The spirit and God's breath are often used as different ways of saying the same thing. And of course, the connection makes sense to us theologically, doesn't it? I mean, if you're reading the Bible, you realize that there's no life without God's breath. The two are connected. There's no life without the spirit who brings the breath. The two are connected, right? So I take this to be that it's the breath of life or the spirit that animates the first humans. We certainly don't have in the account of beginnings in the Bible all that we might like to have, uh, particularly with all of the scientific community weighing in on what they think did and didn't have at beginnings. But the Bible's not meant to tell us everything. It's not a textbook. It's, it's a theological guidebook to say, now look, at here's what you need to know about how all this began. And from this one verse alone, you have two critical ideas about how we came to be. Let's take a look at both of them. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Certainly that's scientifically true. The chemicals that make up our composition 
are chemicals that are common to the Earth and the Earth's atmosphere. We're made of the same stuff. If we wanted to go a bit further, we even have structural similarities with other forms of life. Structural, even at the cellular level. So, from what I have read, the human being has some 20,000 cells. A worm has about 20,000 cells. Think about that the next time you're tempted to step on one of those little things. But then there's a second thing that we learn here that is critical. For this is what separates us from worms and other things that wiggle and squirm. It's only at this point of the creation narrative where we see God doing this. The way it's described, it's as if God himself bends down near the dirt and breathes into the nostrils of that lump. And the lump filled with the breath of God, the Spirit of God, comes to life. A miracle. An individual, fully human, just as God intended, is created. The same can be said about Eve. Filled with the Spirit of God, they now have the ability to procreate, be a part of the continuing creation of God. They have power to rule and administer because they're made in the image of God. But then disaster strikes. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve use their humanness, their ability to make decisions, to decide that they're going to do it a different way than the way that God has intended. And so disaster strikes in chapter 3 in the biblical book of beginnings. As an illustration of what happens, I've chosen a few verses from chapter 3. To Adam he said, because you listen to your wife instead of listening to me, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So curse hits the human race and affects the ground that we walk on. And we're still feeling the repercussions of that curse to this day. But the focus here is what it's going to do to humankind. Through painful toil, that breath of life that you were given will now come in short bursts. Sometimes it'll, you'll, you'll be gasping for it. Life now has been compromised. It's in painful toil. You will eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow, you'll be times when you'll be huffing and puffing for life. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you... Wow. Till you return to the ground... This breath of God that could have lasted forever will now be short. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, 
and to dust you will return. And so two people, fully human, full of the breath of God. Fall from grace. Fall from paradise. And their life becomes less human, subhuman, shades of human, but not fully human. As I said, we, we suffer with the consequences of the curse all the time, one of them being death and the separation of us from those that we truly love for a time. But I think one of the most insidious parts of the curse is what it's done to our memory. We've lived under the curse so long that we think living under the curse and being less than human is actually what it means to be human. At least this is what I hear the culture singing whenever I turn on the radio. We have redefined what it means to be human and we have ignored the biblical story that to be human is to be like Adam and Eve before they made their move to rebellion. And we have redefined being human to being what we are at our worst. We take our proneness to fail, original sin, theological name for this. We take, we take our inability to walk straight and we say, now that's human. And you see, in redefining our worst as what is natural, then we have a built-in excuse for any time we can't walk straight. Well, I'm only, come on, I'm only. So I turn on the radio in 1986, and I hear this song by the Human League, and the song is human. Obviously, a group named the Human League would know a lot about humanity, and so the Human League writes this song called Human. And some of you will know this song, and what's interesting, of course, is the message of the culture and how clearly I heard it back in 1986. 86. Do you remember this? Well, you gotta like that soaring vocal there, isn't that? I love soaring vocals. There's something wrong with this. Now, no discredit to the artists, because they're just, they're just playing songs, that, themes that are familiar in our culture. But who are we calling human here? My, uh, my, my, my friend, brilliant Pentecostal theologian, Frank Macchia, put this idea in my head. He says, when I hear people saying they're only human and justifying their worst things, I think, who are you calling human? What's that have to do with being human? Who are you looking at? Well, if you take away the spirit, I guess you're halfway there, just flesh and blood. Hey, I'm just, you know what the storyline behind this song is? Uh, he, he's telling his significant other that while she was away, because he's, so, she now in the song um, apparently starts crying and he says, come on, baby, dry your eyes. Look, I'm only, I'm only like, like, come on. And then she sings, um, no, no, I'm, I'm not unhappy at all. 
Uh, because while you were gone, I was human too. This is a wonderfully matched couple, isn't it? They probably met on match.com, right? Where you fill in, you know, characteristics, what you're looking for in a partner. I'd like somebody who cheats on me when I'm gone for a week. You know, you fill in that box, you'll get lots of hits, right? Lots of, lots of hits for that. Okay, folks, now no disrespect to these artists. And I'm gonna give you one more in a minute. But really, is human betraying somebody else's trust? You call that human? Okay. Okay, so turn the radio on in 2016. Now it's Rag and Bone Man. I could have found one from every decade, but this song, Human, uh, boy, it was nominated for all kinds of awards. Now, some of you remember this one from the 80s, may not remember this one, even though it's more recent. Guy's got a great voice, song's got a great beat, but listen to the same, same cultural message coming through. I'm only human after all. I'm only human after all. Don't put your blame on me. Don't put the blame on me. Hey, I'm only human. I'm an idiot. I mess up. Don't blame me. Who are you calling human? It's a great song. <laughs> In fact, he says, look, I'm not a savior. I'm not a messiah. But look, this, this idea that we can just redefine what it means to be human and say, I'm only doing what's natural, just seems to miss the whole point. The curse an accursed way of thinking has caused us to think about what we are at our worst and say that's just naturally who I am. That's just unnaturally what we've become. The spirit who breathed life into us when we first began as a race called us to be fully human. And it was our move that caused us to be less then so. So the Spirit not only brings life, but the Spirit, by the grace of God, calls us back to life. It's called the plan of salvation. If you went back to where we started today and started to read in Genesis 4, right? We hit 1, 2, and 3. And you started going through the pages, you would read... Significant moments in human history where God stepped in to try to call people back. When anybody asks me what the Bible is about, I say the Bible is a long history, salvation history, not political, not economic, salvation history. How God has acted at certain moments to draw humanity back to what he intended, to rescue them from their inhuman selves. And so God, who loves, sends the Son. And of course, the salvation history hits its focal point at the end of the book, what we call the New Testament, the New Covenant, that moment when God says, okay, here's my great move, the move I promised. I've made covenants before. Now this is the new one. This is going to bring it home. And he sends Jesus. 
And so when Jesus is in his hometown synagogue, and they hand him the Isaiah scroll, the text that he chose to read is critical for the argument I'm making this morning. So he walks into his hometown synagogue, and it's described in Luke 4, and you'll see it, and they hand him one of the larger scrolls in the closet. And with some ceremony, they hand it to Jesus. And he starts unrolling it. He's passing by a lot of good messianic type of texts. <laughs> Chapter 11 would have been fantastic. Right? Chapter 42, boy, that's a, that's a good one. He goes all the way, almost to the end of the scroll, because he wants chapter 61. Because to Jesus, this explains to the hometown crowd why the Spirit has come upon him. So he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, can I just pause here, anointing language is enabling language, empowerment language, uh, functional. Jesus is saying the spirit has come upon me, is anointing me, in other words, is going to enable me to do something. And then he describes what it is. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus would sit down and say at the beginning of whatever he said to them, we have no record, but we have a record of this. He said, today, today, this starts now. The great promise of Isaiah that there would come a day when the Lord's favor would cover the earth again. Jesus says, it's now and the Spirit is coming upon me so I can announce it with power. I'm so used to having this discussion in a classroom with students and, and they look at me and they're not sure how far they want to go with me on this because for many of the theology students that I inherit, their view of Jesus is so high that they find it hard to imagine that Jesus needs anything more than who he is himself. And so when I suggest to them that Jesus does miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, but Dr. Van, he's God. And when I try this text, but Dr. Van, he's God. Why would he need the Spirit to do a miracle? Why would he need the Holy Spirit's anointing to speak? Jesus can speak without the Holy Spirit. If, if you've already started in the group sessions, if you're following along with us, you'll often hear us make reference to God who presents himself to us as three, who presents, who presents God's self to us as three. And throughout history, salvation history, the three work together. We've just described it. The Father sends the Son. The Son is obedient. And now the Spirit here. And so my, my uh, response in the classroom is my response here. 
obviously, if we take seriously that Jesus is God, which we believe he is, then he is certainly able as God to do whatever he needs to do. But God has chosen that Father, Son, and Spirit will work together to draw us back to full life, to our true humanity. And here we see the role of the Spirit. Jesus says, I can't do this without the Spirit. I can't speak effectively without the Spirit. And I imagine what Jesus means is both that he will help me in what I say and he will enable what I say to affect those who hear what I say. He will enable me and he will tune the receptors of those who hear me so they'll hear me well. We call this ability of the Spirit to take something that Jesus says or something that we read Jesus says in a place like this, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That, that work of the Spirit that causes you to think that what is being read is about you. Perhaps a better way to say it is there is this deep impression that the Spirit gives at moments. When you hear the words of Jesus, you hear the word of God, that all of a sudden you just feel as if the spotlight somehow is on you and everybody knows that this is about you. Have you ever felt that? That just all of a sudden you're thinking, boy, everybody's going to know this text is about me. The, the impression of the Spirit is so acute that you're not only aware of it, but somehow you think that other people are around you too. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit to take what you were hearing and apply it to your life such that you think, wow, this is about me. And what the Spirit does in particular is shows us that this one who, sent, who was sent to proclaim is in fact the hope behind the proclamation. What the Spirit does is shows us that the one who proclaims is indeed our Savior, the one we've needed. In other words, it is the Spirit who shows us Jesus and says, now he's fully human. One of the great Christmas carols, Hark the Herald Angels Sing has a line about Jesus. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in your love. What Adam was able, unable to do because he lost his breath, Jesus now comes to restore us, pull us back. It's the spirit that led me to Jesus for the first time. It's the spirit that leads anyone to the spirit the first time. He's the one who, by God's grace, invites us to see the work of the Father and Son in the cross and invite us to participate, right? Spirit makes it real. Okay. Spirit brings life. There's no life without the Spirit of God. The Spirit responds to us and draws us back. And finally, thirdly, lastly, Spirit restores life to us, restores our breath. 
I'm going to come to a text that I've always wanted to preach about, and uh, this will be a short little one, but I've always wanted to preach from Ezekiel 37 and the vision of the dry bones. This is my moment. And it's probably a good moment for the communion servers to be dismissed. So folks, uh, bless you. Thank you for serving us today. Look forward to seeing you again several moments from now. Ezekiel's given a vision of a valley full of bones. Let's take a look at it. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. Spirit's involved in showing, showing Ezekiel what God's about to do. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bunch of bones live again? Ezekiel is, is being given a prophetic vision of how God will revive a nation, bring it back to life by showing him a bunch of bones. Son of man, what do you think? Look at these bones. What are the chances? Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, try bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Try bones. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Any dry bones in the room? This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. Here is a stunning Old Testament picture of what we've always understood to be the way that life is restored. God breathes again. His spirit comes again, and life comes where there's only dead bones, just flesh and blood. Dry bones. And so this idea that the Spirit restores life is a biblical one too, and I want to show you one more text. The Spirit is not only involved in bringing life and drawing us, but the Spirit is involved in restoring, giving us back our breath, letting us breathe again, start to become more human again. When we get to the uh, eighth chapter of Romans, where Paul in particular wants to emphasize how the Spirit is involved in making us fully human, in what we call salvation. 
He says a couple things about the Spirit that I would like to mention to you. He's defining what it means to be a believer. Notice he starts by saying what it now no longer is. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. You were there. You were flesh and blood. But now you're no longer ruled by dry bones. You're no longer ruled by sin and death. Something has happened to you. You're no longer in the realm of simply flesh and blood. But you are now in the work of the Spirit is so total in your life now. His breath, the breath of God, the Spirit is restoring life in you. You move from dryness. You get your breath back. The Spirit of God fills you. You're now in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, this is the only way you are a believer. Folks, hear this. I'm sure you'll hear it again in the series. You'll, you'll hear it in the group session. Let's just be clear. Whatever else we say about the Holy Spirit during this series, let's just start by saying that everybody who's ever been drawn to Christ and has experienced his salvation has the Spirit this is not something for only certain Christians that attend certain types of churches. You can't be a Christian. You can't be restored without the breath of God, without the Spirit in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Okay, why does, why does Paul call... The spirit here, the spirit of Christ. Is he talking about a different spirit? Well, well, no. In the same way, the scriptures can refer to the spirit of, of God as, as, as the spirit who does God's work in the world, represents to a prophet what God wants said. So it's the spirit now that represents God, the spirit of God. So Paul is saying, now that Jesus has come, now that we understand that he is fully God, we can actually speak about the spirit that represents Christ. It's not as if you have a Holy Spirit and a spirit of Christ and a spirit of God. But, but okay, good, good, okay, good. But now note what this means then. Paul is saying to be a believer now is having the spirit that represents Christ in you. The Spirit points you to Christ and says, now that's someone that's fully human. And when you come to your senses and say, I'm not going to say, look, don't blame me. Okay, blame me. But Spirit of God, would you take the blame off of me? When you come to Jesus, Jesus comes to you by way of the Spirit. Well, I've been thinking about it all week, and let me mention it now again in this third service. I remember that time when I was sitting two-thirds of the way back in my home church in Verdun, Quebec, now part of the greater city of Montreal, and the altar call was given. <laughs> that moment in the service when people with dry bones <laughs> were invited to stand up, and come and meet Jesus and have somebody pray for them. And I remember very distinctly raising my hand <laughs> and then being called up with others. And what I thought happened when I stood here was that, because I was a kid, 
What I thought happened was Jesus had actually come into my heart. There was a chorus I, I used to sing. Into my heart, come into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Right? Come in today, come in to stay. And so I pictured Jesus stepping in me. Of course, as I started to get interested in theology and started attending classes, I realized that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So what gives here? The reason that I feel Jesus inside of me and feel Jesus' presence in this place is that the Spirit who represents Christ, the Spirit of Christ comes into me and makes Jesus' presence so real to me. It's as if he's in my heart. The Spirit who draws me to Christ makes me more like Christ by putting his Spirit in me. And the breath of the Spirit is recreating the Spirit of Jesus in me. So bit by bit, this is just the beginning of the series. He is making us fully human again. Okay. So, may the Spirit of life... May this spirit of life that we sung about opened our hearts to. Just as we come to communion now here in a moment, fill this place. Oh God, would you breathe your life into us? Any dry bones in the room? Seriously, seriously, it's okay. Any dry bones in the room? I don't remember if this was the song we were singing that day that I made my walk to the front. But we sang songs like this one that said, if you want to know this breath of God, then experience Christ. Come to Christ. Have his spirit. Come to the cross. We used to sing this great hymn. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. And then we would sing, At the cross, at the cross, Where I first saw the light, And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my side and now I am happy all the day. Shall we sing it once more? Oh, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. 
make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.